It's from Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 13 and going to the end of the chapter. That's verse 28. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate of the consecrated bread, which is unlawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Please do keep your Bibles open at Mark chapter 2, page 1004, and I'll pray as we begin. Our Father in heaven, we long to know you better We long to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning we pray that you would be at work in us and amongst us to warm our hearts and to transform us to be like Jesus. We pray this for your glory. Amen. One of the greatest evils facing the world today is religion. That's certainly the view of Richard Dawkins. He's made that very clear in his writings and in his uh, speaking. But I've heard that view again and again from people who are not Christians as I speak to them about the Christian faith. They, They say to me, religion is a great evil. It breeds prejudice, violence, exclusion. Think of the Crusades. Think of 9-11. Think of 7-7. 
Religion is a great evil. And so Richard Dawkins, one of his great missions in life is to find a way to eradicate religion from society. And actually, on this point, I agree with Dawkins. Religion is a great evil. And you might think, well, how can I stand here as someone who works for a church and say something so shocking? Because Dawkins is not the first person to be passionately opposed to religion. You see, many years ago, another man came on the scene passionately opposed to religion, deeply troubled by the mindset of religion. And like Dawkins, he longed to see society transformed so that religion was taken out of society. But unlike Dawkins, this man had a message of hope, a message that brought change, a message that met the heart longings that lie behind religion. Of course, that man was Jesus Christ. As we continue our series in Mark's Gospel, and we're here in chapter 2, we see three very different episodes, but with one common theme. The clash between Jesus and religion. And as we look at this amazing section of Mark's gospel, we're going to see that you just can't mix the gospel and religion. They're like oil and water. They can't be mixed. And this morning, as we look at these three episodes, I want us to see how this clash unfolds, to see um, the sort of mindset behind religion and the purposes of Jesus in the gospel. So I want us to see two things in these three episodes, the destructive pattern of religion and the liberating message of Jesus. The destructive pattern, the liberating message of Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, um, you're very welcome, I'm glad you're here. This morning will be crucial for you as you think about what it means to be a Christian. And as you think about why Christianity is different from every other religion in the world. And if we're Christians here this morning, then it's also going to be crucial because religion exerts a pull on us, even if we're those who believe in the gospel. It appeals to our pride, our sense of self-sufficiency. Religion is like a stubborn mist on a cold winter's morning that just lurks around in the hollows and the valleys and the, the crevices. And it takes a strong sunlight to, to drive away that mist. And so this morning, let's shine the light of the gospel on our hearts and so become more focused on the gospel and not on religion, on our performance. There's much in this rich passage, and I won't have a chance to address quite a few of the issues, so be patient with me. But let's, let's dive in and have a look at what we find between Jesus and religion. Three episodes Um, beginning uh, with uh, this incident of Levi and the tax collector. Look down with me at, uh, at verse 14. As he, that's Jesus, walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. 
Tax collectors were, were hated by the Jews. They exacted a, a hefty profit from poor people, and they personified the dreaded Roman rule over the nation of Israel. And it would be unthinkable for a teacher like Jesus to recruit one of these tax collectors to be his follower. But it gets worse. Jesus becomes a friend of this tax collector. He goes home and has dinner with him. And so, verse 16. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This question is a thinly veiled attack on the person of Jesus. The point's quite clear. If Jesus had known better, he would have avoided these tax collectors, these sinners. And straight away, we get an insight into the mindset of the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees thought that they were righteous, that God was pleased with them. And the others, that the sinners, well, they weren't righteous, and they were outside of God's plan for the world. We're not told explicitly why the Pharisees thought they were righteous and others weren't. And I know it's a debated point about whether the Pharisees had a faith in God or if they were simply legalists. But I think as the passage unfolds, it becomes crystal clear that the Pharisees were obsessed with rules, obsessed with law. And For me, it's clear that they were legalists, that they thought that their standing before God was affected by their performance the keeping of the laws. And straight away we see the destructive pattern of religion. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And that breeds pride, doesn't it? Pride in your own performance. And it breeds a critical spirit towards others. You don't quite match the list of tick boxes that you've created for them to keep. It breeds exclusion. And that's exactly what happens with Levi and the Pharisees. But you see, we can have an evangelical form of religion. What about this? Um, I've been to church every Sunday this term. But, um, you know, so-and-so over there, you know, they've missed quite a few Sundays. It's not ideal, is it? Or those children over there, I would never let my children behave like that in church. How can those parents let their children run around that way? What about in our marriages? We're told that our marriages should be based on the gospel, but so often they're based on a religious mindset. My spouse isn't quite as forgiving as I am. (laughs) My spouse isn't quite as patient as I am. My spouse doesn't pray as much as I do. My spouse doesn't read the Bible like I do. And can you see the kind of poisonous, competitive spirit that religion breeds in marriages, in church, at all levels of our lives? It is subtle but dangerous. But look now at the liberating message of Jesus. Verse 17 On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Throughout Mark's gospel, we, we see that when Jesus calls someone to follow him, it means that he forgives them, that he washes them clean. And we know at the end of the gospel, it's because he dies that sinners can be welcomed, can be called and accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I follow. That's true with Levi, isn't it? He was there in his booth, sinning away, and Jesus graciously calls him. It's his initiative. Of course, the gospel does call us to a radically different life. Levi was transformed to follow Jesus. But let's be crystal clear. We're accepted first. Then we are changed and we follow. John Stott tells about the time when he was a student at, at university. And he was trying to tell a friend about the wonderful, outrageous message of grace, of free forgiveness. And as, as he was speaking to this friend, the friend covered his ears and shouted out, horrible, horrible, horrible. He just couldn't stomach the message of grace because grace attacks our pride. It attacks our self-sufficiency. And I wouldn't be surprised if for each one of us here this morning, there's just a little part of us that cries out horrible when we hear about sinners being forgiven. But that is the liberating message of Jesus. While we were at our most sinful, our most, at our lowest point, that is the point that Jesus calls us. He finds us and he rescues us and saves us. Actually, the, the most serious problem with, with religion in this first episode is that religion blinds us to the rescue of grace. The Pharisees were so obsessed with their performance that they missed grace and so were lost. Now, the story is told about the man who was trapped in a flood. The waters were rising up, so he climbed up into the top floor of his house onto the roof and he cried out to God, God, please rescue me from the flood. A few minutes later, a helicopter flew by and the pilot shouted out, are you okay, do you need help? The man said, no, no, I'm fine, God will rescue me. So the helicopter flew away. The man kept praying. A few minutes later, a boat came by the house and the owner shouted out, are you okay, do you need help, do you need rescue? The man said, no, it's fine, it's fine, God will rescue me. And so it goes on. And eventually the waters rose so high, the house was overwhelmed and the man was swept away and lost. And as the man went to heaven and stood before God, he said to God, God, how come you didn't answer my prayer? How come you didn't rescue me? And God said, I tried. I sent two forms of help, the helicopter and the boat, but you refused both. And that's what the Pharisees are doing in this, in this story. God has offered a rescue to them. He's come to save sinners, but they reject the rescue because they have a different plan, a different rescue in mind. And of course, here, their rescue is their performance, their law-keeping. You see, religion can harden us to the gospel so that we actually miss out on the wonderful rescue of Jesus. And it's a warning for us. Flee religion. Accept grace. Well, that's our first episode, and we'll move more quickly now as we go through the next two episodes. But the next episode, episode two, is about feasting and fasting. Look down at verse 18. 
Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, in the Old Testament, fasting was a great thing to do. It was a good thing to do, but actually it was only commanded once a year on the Day of Atonement. And fasting was an act of mourning, an act of preparation for the forgiveness of sins, once a year and once a year only. But throughout the Old Testament, we see that fasting becomes a barometer, a man-made barometer for spiritual fervor, it could, to test your zealousness for God. And by the time we get to Jesus' day, we find that the Pharisees, we're told in Luke 18, the Pharisees fasted twice a week to prove that they were zealous, that they were the real deal, really God's people. And of course, the point here is the Pharisees think that the disciples of Jesus are frauds, that they're lukewarm, they're not the real deal. Otherwise, they would be fasting twice a week. Do you see the dangerous patterns of religion at work beneath the surface here? The Pharisees are prioritizing man-made rules over relationship with God. They completely miss the whole ministry of Jesus because they're so obsessed on keeping their man-made agendas. Prioritizing religion rules over relationship. And of course, we see the response of Jesus in verse 19. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. It would be a, a bizarre wedding, wouldn't it, where the guests turn up and they have their wedding breakfast and no one eats. This wonderful feast laid before them that they go, no, 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 it's a time of mourning. It's not a good day. It would be bizarre, wouldn't it? Uh, even in Scotland, where I'm from, people expect to have a good meal at a wedding. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? But the point's simple, isn't it? Jesus is saying, now is the time for feasting, for celebration. You see, I am bringing in the kingdom of God onto earth. It, it is the best moment in history as I announce free forgiveness to the world. A time for feasting, not fasting. Rejoicing, not sadness. But the Pharisees are, are prioritizing rules over relationship. They, know, they don't get Jesus. They, they're stuck on their rules. And it's so easy for us as Christians just to slip back into that mindset. So we think, I must adopt the Christian norm, the Christian way of living. So I, I need to come to church. I need to read my Bible. I need to pray. I need to sign up for a road to the serve. Tick all these boxes. But in our busyness, in our zeal, we forget that being a Christian is first and foremost about knowing Jesus, about having that relationship with him, about accepting his ministry and rejoicing in what he's done for us on the cross. Jesus goes on to tell us that the gospel and religion are they're, they're, they're incompatible. That's, that's the point of verses 21 and 22. You, you sew a bit of new cloth onto an old cloth and you ruin the old cloth. Or you put new wine into an old wineskin, it, it ferments, it expands, it bubbles, and it bursts the old wineskin. You can't mix religion with the gospel. Uh, Andrew tells me we don't have enough uh, illustrations about science at church, so I'm going to try one on you this morning. 
I'm told this week that scientists, for the first time, have been able to trap or isolate uh, an antimatter atom. Doesn't mean much to me, but I'm told that antimatter atoms are very elusive because the moment they meet a normal atom, a matter atom, they, they're destroyed, they vanish. You can't have an antimatter matter, uh, atom and a matter atom together. They, they destroy each other. And that's true with the gospel and religion. The moment you mix the gospel with any part of religion, you destroy the gospel. You lose out on the message of forgiveness. I just think so often as Christians, we try to go for a hybrid. You know, we're saved by grace, but then it's about my performance afterwards. I earn favor with God now as a Christian by praying lots or or being a good person. But the gospel is what saves us, and the gospel is is what keeps us as Christians throughout our lives. Well, we're almost finished. Our third episode, um, Eating Grain. Um, Verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisee said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? What's going on here? It's a, bit, it's a bit confusing. In the Old Testament, it was legal to help yourself to a little grain of wheat here and there. It was a way of blessing people who were hungry. You know, the farmers leave some extra wheat around so you can just get a meal from the, from the field. That was fine. But clearly, we're told in the Old Testament not to work on the Sabbath. So then the question becomes, well, what is work? And the Pharisees devised literally hundreds of definitions to define what work was and what it wasn't. They had this massive scheme of what you could and couldn't do in the Sabbath. And for the Pharisees, plucking some grain from a field on the Sabbath, well, that was work. It wasn't what God said was work. It's what the Pharisees said was work. It was their definition. But can we see the liberating, uh, the, um, the destructive patterns of religion? The Pharisees had taken what was a good thing, a blessing, and made it a burden. The Sabbath was meant to be a day of rest, a day of restoration in a hectic life. It was a good blessing from God to humanity to help us to stop and to be refreshed. But the Pharisees had said, no, here's a whole list of commands you mustn't do. And it became a burden, a form of condemnation for God's people. And that is what religion does. It takes a blessing and creates it into a burden. I think you know, having a Sunday off is a great pattern for us today. It's a chance to rest and recover, to spend time thinking about God together. Um, I've mentioned it to Andrew many times. It'd be great to have a day off for the clergy on a Sunday, wouldn't it? It'd be excellent. <laughs> but we mustn't take a blessing and create it into a burden. To set a whole lot of rules around how we observe Sundays. Look at how Jesus... Um, goes on in verse 27. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath is meant to be a blessing for humanity, not a way of controlling and being a burden for humanity. But religion takes a blessing and creates it into a burden. Religion says, you must read your Bible, you must pray, you must go to church to tick the boxes. The gospel says, We are free to come to church. We are free 
to hear God speak to us in his word. We are free to pray to God. What a thrill. It's a blessing, not a burden. And Jesus is, is brilliant at, at turning things around and saying, don't skew it, don't mess it around. Remember, these things are a blessing, not a burden. Well, as we finish, in a sense, Richard Dawkins is right. Religion, in its pure sense, is a great evil. And only Jesus comes with the message that will rescue us from religion. What sort of person are we becoming in our Christian walk? Um, just occasionally you meet a person who's been a Christian for many years and there's just a, a warmth, a graciousness, a, a generosity about them, the way they speak and act. And you can just tell it's because they've been feasting on the gospel of mercy for many years. It's wonderful to see, isn't it? But notice the contrast between those people and the Pharisees who look at Levi and Jesus and they judge, they're critical. What kind of people are we becoming in our Christian walk? Well, let's strive, because we can, to become more like Jesus, to accept his liberating message of free forgiveness. And wouldn't it be great if we could model to other people that same message? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus has not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And we thank you that means that we are called, that we are forgiven. Not based on our performance, but based on a free gift. Father, please help us to see how that affects our lives at every level. And please, would we become more and more people of grace, not people of religion. People of generosity and graciousness not judgmentalism and exclusion. In Jesus' name, amen.